you get a group mm. of people who are interested in the open science movement, eventually someone's gonna like bring this up. <laughs> like they'll、mm-hmm. say, "No, we need to、um, think about like re- reform versus revolution." Eventually, a discussion starts. Welcome to Reproducibility, an open science podcast featuring early career researchers. We're super excited to be back for season three. I'm Sarah. Yeah, I'm Sarah. I have moved since last season, so I'm now a lecturer in psychology at the University of Lincoln. Congratulations! So I'm coming to you. Yeah. Thank you. I'm coming to you from Lincoln in the UK, and this makes a land acknowledgement a little bit interesting for me. Um, I've had a thought about it. I it might change right now. What I've come up with is this. So I am an immigrant. I am living on the land of the people who colonized the land on which my family settled, and I've called home for most of my life. So called Canada. So that's me. Yeah, great. Go ahead, Jan. Oh, I should go next. So、um, I'm Jan.、Um, I'm a PhD fellow. I think. Which just means I'm a PhD、Ooh. student in Denmark now at ITU in Copenhagen because I also、Ooh. moved. Yay!、Um, and just to just to complain about Denmark real quick. For now, for the first time <laughs> in ten years, I live in a country where the green light on traffic lights、yeah. no longer flashes before it switches back to red, and that is so annoying. After. You look confused. I've never seen we that. We never. Yeah, we don't、no. have that in other countries. No. Yeah, this is <laughs> both in Austria and Finland. Like before, the the traffic light,、um, both for cars and for、uh, pedestrian traffic, turns red. It will start flash green, so you、oh, know that the green phase is ending, and then it switches back to、oh. red. Wait, do you have、yellow. an amber? Yeah, do you have an amber or well, yellow light? Cars, cars have yellow, but pedestrians only have red and yet red and green. So, oh, now oh, I have to get used to、oh, it. Yes, 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 yes. So now I, might, I, I step out onto the street, and in that moment, the light turns red, and you're the one. Ah, should I, should, should I step back? Or <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Should I keep running? So, so yeah, that's that's trying to settle in in Denmark at the moment. Wait, what else happened to you, Jan? What what else? I yeah, ju- I just、you're... moved to Denmark. No no, you're now、shaving. you're now the. Oh oh right yeah I'm I'm now the I'm now the I'm head of the reproducibility steering committee. Yay!、Um, yeah thank you. It's my turn this year. Um, which means I changed the how I sign the reproducibility emails. That's awesome. It's perfect. And nothing else changed so far. <laughs>、okay. Uh, so I should introduce myself. I'm、yes. Will. And I haven't moved.、Uh, I'm still coming from <laughs> Chicago in the United States.、Uh, so yeah, yeah、um, I'm coming from you,、uh, coming to you、uh, from the unceded lands of the Kikapu, Peoria, Miami, and Potawatomi nations.、So、that's my acknowledgement of land. Yep,、yeah, I'm in the same place and haven't changed. Still same opinions. Let's go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're going to try something new for this season. We are trying segments. So we are looking for feedback from you at any point. Do you like the structure? We are also playing with segment names right now. We're trying to come up with fun afternoon tea related puns, but we're not married to any of those names. If you have any suggestions, we are open to them. So、without further ado, let's dive right in. So our first segment is called Tasty Tea Bit, or perhaps Appetizer. We haven't yet decided.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, in this first segment, we're going to sort of introduce the topics we're going to cover in the episode. Maybe flag a paper or a project or some resource that we want to share with you,、um, which might be relevant for you to pause the episode and go to, and then have a read through or listen. Uh, and yeah, so in this first episode, we're going to be talking about sort of governance、uh, and this idea of、uh, reform versus revolution that pops us pops up a lot in the open science movement. And we're going to eventually talk about who does that reform or revolution work.、Uh, so that will be this will be our first segment. Sounds good. And the paper we. Gonna kind of open with today.、Um, I brought it this time. 
It's called the Credibility Crisis and Democratic Governance, How to Reform University Governance to be Compatible with the Nature of Science by Zoltan Dienes. Um, it came out, I think, last month. Yeah, accepted 6th of January, 2023. Um, have you two read it recently? I, I had met a you, I forgot. No, no <laughs> I had a skim. In the uh, best tradition of the podcast. um so to like to quickly recap this paper um dianas basically makes the argument that our the way university currently is governed by basically in a administrative class Mm -hmm. um is not great for science because um this um, administrators, managers um, have different goals compared mm -hmm. to us researchers. And um, at the same time, we researchers have our researchers and administrators have different skill sets. Um, and even every researcher has a slightly different skill set. Um, so he proposes that instead we could model how we run our universities um, after uh how the ancient athens have governed their um state their city state okay which would basically mean well it could mean a lot of things but one of the core principles of that was that um the governing bodies regularly switched through very few of them were elected most of them were assigned by um a lot so Basically, I think like jury duty in the US, you get pulled mm. out of a hat and be summoned to congratulations, you're now on the policy panel. Mm -hmm. um, and he argues that like democracy is very beneficial to science in a segment that I cannot really talk about. It talks about um, how apparently in the past democratic phases in European history were especially um, good for um, science, but I'm absolutely not read into any of that. But I find this idea very good that mm -hmm. we as researchers, like I'm as a PhD student, for example, have absolutely no say in whatsoever, but I have, I have needs that other people currently decide over. Um, I have well opinions how um how we should tackle certain things. Um and I have read things other people haven't, but I do not have many um opportunities to bring my voice in. And even worse, it is easy to just not listen to me. Um mm. so this idea of let's have a That's workplace where we actually have a democracy kind of sounds very, very appealing. Yeah, I mean. It's clear that hierarchical structures have their downsides, which include those who are at the bottom of the ladder don't get their needs met because they're just simply, they don't have power and they don't have the power to you know, influence policy, um, even be heard. So they end up being underrepresented or invisible. Um, this conversation reminds me a lot about the discussion around postdocs because mm. postdocs are placed in basically a limbo, right? Because they're not grad students, so they don't really have dedicated resources in that manner. Yet they're not really start, like they're not really considered faculty. So they don't get those positions or resources or have an influence. So they're left in this limbo where they're sort of not, I say they, me, we, <laughs> we are left in a limbo yeah. that uh, is like, we're sort of invisible. We're sort of mm -hmm. not cared about. And because it's temporary, people don't want to invest in us uh, or set up structures for us. So yeah, I think, I think having a way, a mechanism that essentially, essentially dislodges this sort of hierarchy and does push people around into different sources or positions of power is an intriguing one. Mm -hmm. um, but it does also seem hard to implement 
at the same time. So uh, that if anyone caught that, that was a segue into sort of maybe our next segment. Uh, Very smooth. <laughs> I think oh, you're, I, you're, you're introducing. <laughs> oh, right. Sorry. I, I looked at the other document. Um, yeah, we, we kind of um, can use this idea of um, currently governance um, of universities is very, well, not democratic to um, have a debate about the theory of change and policy, uh, sorry, reform versus revolution, kind of what we started with last year. Um, we kind of wanted to revisit that thing. What has changed in a year? Yeah, Sarah, do you like? Yeah. You, what do you, do you, what do you think? What What's your position? Called? Yeah, yeah, go, go, go ahead. Oh, oh, for the second name. I'm sorry. Yes, please. Please do. No, you do it. You do it, yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yes, we call the segment the main course. Imagine it like the nice plate of cake you get with your tea. Yeah, this we're gonna get Ooh, right into the it. Sandwiches, the like mm, the cucumber sandwiches, very yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The carbs. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I thought this would be a good place to open the season because we have touched on this before. And it seemed like a good launch into something because it covers a lot of different topics in relation to open science. And I, I think it came up originally for me because it will use the term reform quite a bit. And as someone who's involved in a lot of social justice, my sort of knee-jerk reaction to that word is like, ooh, <laughs> because to me, reform implies that we keep the underlying structures the same, but we tweak the edges versus revolution to me is we really need to fundamentally change how things work. And whether you know revolution often inspires ideas or brings up ideas of like, fire and brimstone but like we don't necessarily have to do it that way revolution hmm. i mean it could be argued i don't i don't think it necessarily has to be violent particularly not in, in science uh but that's the fundamental sort of difference to me reform is the underlying structures stay the same we tweak the edges versus revolution is we really need to change how everything works and i guess the main question is which one do we think we want to go for and the second question is how do we go about it then i mean even uh, just for completeness even what is or what brought about reform oftentimes was not yeah. non-violent either we just um we're oftentimes not taught how violent some things got before they got better mm -hmm. um yeah the whole discussion yeah. about how to protest right yeah, which is mostly bullshit. Because like <laughs> the reason we have a weekend is because of like violent labor protests, and you know the reasons we have so many freedoms is because of violent protest in history. Um, yeah, which is why this to me that the term sort of science revolution, re science reform. My initial reaction is like, ooh, no, not not enough, you know. Yeah. So uh, this this is. Also, this question comes up a lot everywhere. Like whoever, if you get a group mm. of people who are interested in the open science movement, eventually someone's going to like bring this up. Like they'll mm -hmm. say, no, we need to um, think about like reform versus revolution. Eventually a discussion starts. And I, I remember that discussion we had last season because you used a, a phrase theory of change or I think this was like, oh no, this was in the SIPS episode, if anyone wants to go back to it. Mm -hmm. But um, it seemed like we didn't have a sort of unified framework or a unified model on how the change would occur, which leaves us trying to make change happen, but sort of we're not on common standing and this can cause issues. Mm -hmm. So I really like this idea of um, theory of change, like having a theory on how the change should happen. Uh, and that's something we should probably discuss more uh, amongst everyone who's trying to change the system. Uh, yeah, and so to try and, <laughs> I'm gonna be the annoying person here and say, okay, um, like most of psychology, uh, this is not a dualistic 
thing. Mm. Like you mm-hmm. don't have to do mm-hmm. one or the other. It's not reform or revolution. But let me try mm-hmm. and um, uh, sort of encapsulate, I think, the feelings behind each of the camps because I think mm-hmm. that's the most important part here. Mm. Um, so I think for me, when people who say we need a revolution, uh, it's the idea that uh, the scale of change that we need to have to really fix everything is huge. It's massive. There's so much that needs to be done across so many levels that it almost feels like we should just start again. Like there's so much that we need to do that we're better off just starting afresh. And um, another piece of that is that revolution sort of brings in this idea you get this like immediacy with this change, I suppose, because you're having this big change, this big effect. So something is done sort of uh, in an, in a, you know, at a moment. Um, And I think um, like the immediacy of this change resonates with a lot of people, especially for early career researchers, Mm. as I, you know, mentioned earlier with postdocs, um, a lot of early career researchers are feeling a sense of uncertainty about, you know, a lack of upward mobility, a lack of like stability in science, uh, a lack of support, a lack of pay, a lot of lack of recognition. So a lot of these things resonate with um, people who like are wanting to change. Mm-hmm. Now uh, I've used the word reform as Sarah suggested, and that's sort of where I lean as well. Um, in that, I think the reform camp recognizes that, sometimes the most pragmatic steps are the smaller steps just get the get your foot facing the right way like so that you can take a step um Mm -hmm. and they sort of recognize that academia and science are sort of monolithic in a way and they're sort of hard to really pull down all at once so you've got to chip at it um and Mm -hmm. so incremental changes uh, are meaningful to creating this uh, to bringing down what the monolith is. And for me, uh, incremental change uh, is more like local change. So changes at your institution, like a reproducibility journal club, getting <laughs> it on the, on the map, getting, getting, <laughs> getting open science, uh, community initiatives at local institutions can create a lot of um, local change and have a lot of positive impact there. And if we have that happen at many different institutions, many different localities, then you start to get this energy, this momentum to then maybe push forward. Um, like a tipping point, right? You reach the... Um, yes, absolutely. There's a word for that that I can't think of right now, the critical mass. Critical mass, yes. Um, yeah. So going back, I'll, I'll stop talking in a little bit. Going back for <laughs> a theory of change, Um I think a lot of people have in their minds that policy is the way to go. Like you need to have like some sort of central policy that influences everyone. And I don't agree. Like, I think Mm, you need distributed change. You need Mm -hmm. change everywhere, uh, local change to actually get a movement to take hold. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm referencing sort of ideas by Damon Santola, who does sort of research on uh, movements and, um, uh, how they take hold. And yeah, this sort of central out sort of theory doesn't really make sense for us. Uh, we should be more distributed in the way we approach uh, reform. So yeah, what do you two think about those positions? What I what I guess I get from that is the, the idea being that reform can lead us to revolution over time. So it's a more like slow... I like the idea of chipping away at it. I, I've come across this critique, maybe is the best, I don't know if that's the right word, but of the idea of monolith. Um, I got this from Maxi Baron, who is director of the Clear Lab, and they're talking about anti-colonial and, and mm-hmm. feminist methods and this idea that like the institution and colonialism, settler colonialism, capitalism, try to present themselves as some monolith, some like wall that we have to crash our bodies onto and break ourselves. But like, actually they're not as perfectly replicated as they like to make us think they are. Mm-hmm. So it's about finding the cracks in them, Absolutely. finding the cracks in that monolith and like 
Yes. Making that crack a little bit wider. Every yes. Time. It, that's exactly but, how, yeah. yes, that's exactly how I think about it. Like massage those cracks and mm-hmm. then eventually those cracks become big enough to become mm-hmm. serious. Um, yeah. And this is to say that I should also clarify that I don't think ref- like, you know, small, not yeah, like small incremental reform is the way to go in all situations. Like mm-hmm. I do think some of science needs revolution. The one that comes to mind for me is uh, scientific publishing. Like that's, that's really just, <laughs> something's yeah. just gotta like go there. Like, oh, I think none of us are happy in this situation. Um, like we need to call, we need to stop relying on for-profit publishers um and you know peer review is like we we need to think of a better way we need a bit to think of a better way to do peer review and have scientific rigor um Mm -hmm. sort of incorporated into our research process so yeah Mm -hmm. that's sort of a situation where i do see like okay that like Rip, rip the band-aid off that's got to go right um it ties back to, i think to governance for me and i think yeah i think that link can be made very clearly where the whole point of publishing as i understand it is that scientists talk to each other hmm. so yeah. why are we letting this other entity govern that or mediate it right like how can we govern ourselves in our publishing because the whole, yeah we're talking to each other yeah like why are we <laughs> why are we allowing this company make literally billions of profit where, and that profit does not go back to the science community generally. Um, And the process by which they like, you know, it's meant to be us communicating and doing that. They do that poorly. Like they're not Mm -hmm. even good at it. (laughs) Like, what are we doing? What are we doing? Yeah. Yeah, So academic publishing is, um, it's just such a bizarre beast in in how it fakes having value. Yes, like even, absolutely. Even from a, I guess, capitalist perspective, they are a bad deal, mm. right? Mm-hmm. It is not financially a good idea to have them around. <laughs> no. uh, um, except you know, for a handful of shareholders. Um, yeah. So I think it's, yeah. So another part of this, um, uh, I like, I like, I've been thinking about this idiom a lot. I don't know. Is it an idiom? But um, like slow boiling frogs or the story of a slow boiling frog. Right, the right, idea, yeah. So the idea is like, oh, the way to, if you just slowly raise the temperature of the water, the frog inside's not going to notice and they eventually boil. I mean, I think that's kind of what happened with scientific publishing. It was mm. so slow that um, people, scientists weren't realizing how bad this was going to get. And then eventually, and then we just, it got bad. It got really, really bad. And yeah, yeah, sometimes yeah. I do think like scientists need a bit of a kick. Like we need something abrupt to make us uncomfortable to enforce change which is a little weird but um but it does feel like something yeah we we shouldn't be just comfortable with the status quo i guess is what i'm saying we need a bit of um disruption uh this is slightly uh inspired by i've been reading a book or i've i finished the book quite recently against method by paul fiharabend and he has this <laughs> he calls for this um science anarchy scientific anarchy mm. and he was doing it in terms of knowledge but i was also thinking hmm yeah we probably need some disruption to uh, our system some sort of anarchy in that and chaos to you know create change to enact change you get through um, that book yeah i did okay uh, I, I got like I two pages in it was like nope not right now that guy would have been a hoot on twitter he's, <laughs> he's just <laughs> shit posting like no <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, uh, like the w- one discussion that we uh, that we we ha- tried to have a book club reading it, um, and we and we I think got two chapters in, and um, we're like, this guy is basically um, is more arguing for like wasteland style libertarianism than for actual like 
communal anarchism. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's a bit um, extreme in that sense. And the book is like super dead. So yeah. um yeah, I've been thinking about like re-reviewing that book and writing that and like sort of saying, hey, these are the ideas I pulled out of it. And like I mean but, the, the the core idea that I that I pulled out of it, um, and I have no idea if that is what he meant. Um uh, was basically question everything. Like nothing is holy, nothing is beyond recognition, even down to the to what we think are axioms, right? We should we should not take nothing for granted. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a powerful perspective. Um, though you know nowadays I don't think it's that new anymore. Um, with like you know constructivism and postmodernism. Um, yeah like don't take science as this magical force that will Mm. generate you know perfect truths yeah right like so um but so the reason i bring that up is that i like you like this idea of um like anarchy i guess like chaos seems very comforting to me in the sense that Comforting might be a really weird word here, but like, yes, we need some sort of chaos in the system. And, uh, and it, it, to me, it means it, freedom. Like we need diversity of voices to be, so we have theory that's chaotic, right? We have people who are able to like work freely and sort of push around things and try things um, that aren't the status quo to try and make progress mm. on something. So it really, so I, <laughs> this thought you can take the uh the vice versa perspective i guess which is like currently we're kind of boxed in like we don't have freedom to move and like to c- create this chaos we sort of we have to go down these really well-defined tracks and like so on and so forth and that's how i feel about like reform like or revolution is trying to insert chaos into the system like trying to get out of those like well-defined tracks to make new better ones um so yeah anyway uh that's interesting i i i tend to resist the association of anarchy and chaos just because in my mind anarchy isn't that like everything's on fire it's chaos there's no law yeah like i don't don't mean yeah but like you explain better than that that's not what you mean (laughs) yeah yeah not not the structure but yeah 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 i mean yeah and anarchy in the sense that we don't absolutely know what's going on yeah. But we have freedom to push around and figure out what's going on. Yeah, um, and what works rather... for us, right? I, I like that you pointed out that it's about local and community. So it's what if one thing works in one area, it might not work somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And so we have to find what works for us locally. And I mean, at the same time, in our networks, right? We're so internationally connected. We're talking to each other in three different nations, nation states, um, on two different continents. So you know. Our, our communities are also geographically diverse. Mm-hmm. And so there's, a, I guess, different levels of community that could happen, whereas like, at your institution, you're all physically there and you're working together in the same place. But also we have all these online communities because of, of things like reproducibility network, where that's also a community that counts where things might work. And even within that, like things might not work in North America the same way as in Asia. And, you know, so it's it's finding all those pockets and having anarchy. That's what anarchy is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree that that fits with my worldview. Like you have mm. these different communities, these different pockets and people belong to different pockets and different communities. They can build bridges. They can bring ideas across different communities and try it and see if it works. Um, Mm. I think most of us will realize that a lot of the things are common. Like some things, yes, uh, will probably uh, unique local changes, especially at the institution level, like different departments have different makeup and administration, so on and so forth. But I think in the sort of, let's say, global sense of this, um, like some of the things need to uh, common across all of us, like uh trying to pick a non-controversial one Let, let's <laughs> let's bash on scientific publishing again like going away from like you know for-profit prestige metrics like for publishing like 
we need time. We all need to slow down. Mm-hmm. We need to like, like this would be good for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> like if we don't rely on this. So like thinking of new yeah. ways to get out of that and rewarding good science, rigorous science. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I've noticed it's really interesting here in the UK. There, there seems to be much more than I, I'm, I'm used to in, in Canada, for example, like everything is geared towards the ref and everything is geared toward impact. The ref? Mm. Sorry? The ref, so the research excellence framework. Every four years, every university gets evaluated. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And every paper gets rated <laughs> with different one to four stars and you have to have three or four star refable papers to be successful. And you have to have impact. Impact is mm-hmm. a huge buzzword here in a way that I've not come across before. Have I, have I, I, I oh, sorry, have I talked about um, C. Thyneguian's paper, uh, Transparency Surveillance? Don't Did think I? so, no. Tell oh, I'm, I'm a big fan of C.T. Nguyen. Um, uh, just to give a bit of background before you go ahead. Yeah, yeah please. He's a, he's a philosopher and he his main thing is was like games like video games um but he's it's really interesting because he does like he thinks about agency like you know Mm -hmm. games provide you a world where you have agency and well-directed goals so like Mm. you know like that gives you a sense of agency that's comforting and like fun and environment and whatever um allows you to see a different world view to the one that we're currently in um and so and his perspective is just so interesting he also does some misinformation uh, like how do people end up believing like misinformation work and stuff like that? Anyway, big fan. Totally yeah. highly recommend uh following his work. Yeah, I I I I was in contact with his contact with his research. I read a bit of it for my game stuff. Um, but then I saw his paper like Transparency is Surveillance is the title. Um and basically mm. the core are one of the core arguments for it is um when you force an expert to be transparent, i.e. that a layperson has to be able to follow their ruling, um, you are forcing that expert to resort to the lowest common denominator. Um, The example that he gives in that paper, for example, is if a theater director who receives public funds has to argue towards a government panel why they chose play x over play y they will they are less likely to argue well in my opinion um, x has a very interesting perspective on x y and z um but they will instead say that um x sold more tickets at y when it was played um in this other city right because for a layperson who doesn't know anything about place um, and why a play would be worthy to show over another, hard numbers make much more sense. And on a university level, that would mean that um, a philosophy department, for example, will not um, be judged or will probably not be judged on um, how good their education is, but on how many people they can put through Mm -hmm. and maybe how many of those people got employed. Um, so while transparency is, um, important, it also can force unwanted metrics onto us. Oh, a hundred percent. That's a lot of what is going on in the book, um, dissident knowledge in higher education and talk about the neoliberalization of the academy and how much more we're being surveilled. Mm -hmm. And I just read a chapter in it called, um, biting university that feeds us by Eve Tuck. It's really good. And there's I think that's where I read it. I read several things recently. And there's a little bit where it says it's not a coincidence that the increase in diversity in our universities is linked with increased surveillance and demands for transparency. Whoa. Wow. That's an interesting take because I've um my impression was that this was just two things that happened at the same time, right? We are currently more. Uh, sensitive to yeah it's hard uh, it's hard to like i think absolutely tie those things together but if i mean this is in the context of settler colonialism neoliberalism Mm -hmm. and this desire to keep Mm -hmm. white spaces white yeah and so that's the the argument was made that these things are linked no it makes a lot of sense yeah yeah wow Uh, 
to, huh. to dial yeah, and to even add more to this, um, back to C.T. Nguyen, who has a paper on um, the seductions of clarity. Highly recommend this paper. Uh, it's sort of the same with the um, same idea with anarchism <laughs> that I was suggesting before. I don't know mm-hmm. why I'm just I'm suddenly becoming an anarchist. Yay! In this, in this podcast. <laughs> um, uh, the idea is that um, uh, like we can be duped into terminating our like uh, investigation, I guess, when mm. we've reached like a threshold. And one thing that does that might be the use of like metrics. So like mm. you have a metric, you like, for example, oh, this jur- this paper was at a this journal, you that that heuristic stops your like investigation because you're like good enough, good enough evidence. And all like, mm. oh, that's c- clear. It like preys on your sense of like clarity. Like, oh, I'm now clear about something. Therefore I'm done. Mm. Uh, I'm done investigating. So uh, highly recommend that. And it comes back. Yeah. Just to sort of try and bring us back to this reform versus revolution idea. It's mm. clear that uh, it's clear. It's clear that, um, like you know these metrics have an effect on how governance occurs maybe we we do need a like disruption in these metrics or we need better thinking about these metrics um mm-hmm. to try and enforce change um mm-hmm. so one thing that has come up in some of the reform movement um is the idea of um changing like criteria for promotion and tenure um that is really one incisive way of getting change to happen rather than making it publications or journals that you publish in it's now rigor tied metrics like how often do you upload your data how often do you replicate your work like stuff like this that doesn't Um, work for all types of science no but i can see how it can be worked into like where it's relevant right this is all, again all dependent on the context <laughs> right 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 yeah. um and not necessarily tying a number to it but like mm. tying an evaluation of it so for example mm. like, like an inter- yeah an interview or like mm-hmm. um just like a yeah like a qualitative like mm. how do you like what have you done what have you achieved in this regard Mm-hmm. that seems reasonable to me like you don't have to have a number like like you could have yeah. a judgment of someone who's who who has a vision for the direction of where the department's going it's like yeah i think you are succeeding in oh. achieving this thing or not all um, right there's a spider coming at me oh, <laughs> oh welcome to the uk <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's fine it's all the way okay yeah, I mean, in terms of harmless. numbers, I was pre-warned, I don't know, forewarned that, you know, as many times the university might say, all we want to see is evidence that you're applying for funding. It doesn't really matter whether you get it or not. And they were mm-hmm. like, no, that's not yeah. actually like in, in the end, whether or not you get a promotion, it's you're all about evaluated. the dollars. Yeah. It's yeah. How much money you've brought in. Okay. <laughs> so trying to make a plan for long-term funding. <laughs> yeah so those to me at least it's for the individual researcher it's difficult to like become to just uh to enact a revolution of that let's say like it's Mm. like okay so what can yeah so what can you do then you've got to do like yeah some sort of like like what i would call reform like you've got to do some internal local stuff and to try and like shake it up like um and in an optimistic view let's say a lot of institutions shake up their systems and then suddenly this framework that everyone is using is suddenly not used like is suddenly like oh people are like oh why are we doing this then suddenly you have a a a crack that you can sort of build it like push in um to try and change oh so that's how i think about that i think that's a great way to potentially start wrapping up this discussion and like introduce the season where like you know what we're trying to do is find those cracks identify those places that look at those projects that are doing things differently talk to people who are doing things differently and 
figure out together as a community what are the ways in which we can enact these different actions that are reform or revolution as you want to identify. Yeah. Could I, I would like to make one other point to mm-hmm. make us all very depressed again. Yeah, make the fi- have the final word. Have the final word, yeah, for sure. <laughs> the white guy on the podcast. Like <laughs> um, so what I find very, very devious to an extent is that our system is built in a way that as soon as you decide to start your own little reforms, in order to one day hopefully have it boil up into a full-grown revolution and we get rid of this whole uh, whole system. While you're starting out, you are giving up a lot of privilege that you would have while you are playing the game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you say you don't... If, if somebody doesn't want to play the funding game, until we no longer value funding as important, they are on their back foot, right? As soon as we s- try to change things, we will be automatically co- pushed out of the system. You don't want to play the prestige game. You're not publishing in prestigious journals. Great. The people who still play the game can wreak all the free spots that you left open. Mm-hmm. So... And 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 this is combined with um, like us as ECRs, where it's we might end up very quickly in a situation where we wash ourselves out of the system just because we cannot perform with a fucked up system. Um, and I I I, I, I I I don't have a solution for this. I don't think there there is one except um, stick with it and stick through it. I think there is already change. Um, and I think it's it's it has become easier to do like open science stuff to be part of this mm-hmm. revolution and still get ahead, um, or you know at least stay in the game. But even now, I still see so many people just burning out on the whole thing. Um, uh, and yeah, I don't uh, want to add to the super long reading list we already have, but um. Uh, Hextra mm-hmm. and Vizier have written a thing about aspiring yes. to greater intellectual humility in science. Mm. I feel like I talked about this before. It's it will also be in the by now. That's a great paper. Long uh, thing below. <laughs> in the below reading list. <laughs> yeah. uh, As usual, the test is next week. Um, yeah. yeah. Let like to maybe spin that a little bit. Mm, uh, I think for early career researchers, it's important to be pragmatic. This is advice that I'm trying to tell myself because I'm terrible at this, mm. but be pragmatic. Like do think, don't try and rip everything apart. Like don't just pull yourself out of the system. Yeah, be pragmatic, work. like, okay, achieve what you need to achieve and take steps towards that. But also have an eye towards, yeah, what you can do, what power you have and what relationships may not be so reciprocal uh, and see what you can do about that. Cause sometimes mm-hmm. asking uh, for change, maybe the is simply is the simple step, right? Um, so being aware of that, don't be the slow boiling frog. Um, yeah. Be pragmatic. Sounds like we're gearing up to, uh, to a bit of a rant. I mean, we want to have a bit of a rant. Will, do you want to introduce our next segment? Yeah. Uh, our third segment is called spill the tea so this is our rant segment um a space for uh to vent about whatever is bothering us or perhaps you uh so uh get in touch with us uh we always love to hear your feedback um and uh love to hear from the community uh you can submit a topic uh for discussion uh and for this segment uh, you can either submit a topic or a voice clip um, that we can play in the podcast and we'll chat about it. Uh, and the rant doesn't have to be negative. Um, if you're really excited about something, send that in too. And we'll positively rant about that. Uh, yeah. So what are we going to spill the tea on today? It'll be a good talk. We have several good topics we can rant about. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, one thing I've learned about academics is if you give us a chance, we'll just complain about everything. 
and that is good. Yeah. Well, Jan, you brought up a topic earlier. You wanna? Yeah, we we can try uh, getting into the whole um, positionality statement thing, um, where there recently was a, I think, not very good paper arguing that positionality statements um, are not only not needed, but actually bad, because we cannot write them perfectly, because they are subjective. That's the whole point. Yeah, right? (laughs) Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, not that they're bad, that they're subjective. The whole point is that science is subjective. So, yeah, I, I, yeah. I find that I find yeah. it so I find that thing so baffling in the way it it misunderstands the whole point, and I, 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 I don't want to, you know, what, what uh, don't assume malice when you can assume, mm. um, uh. Incompetence. I don't know what the right word is, um, but but the paper seems to so willfully misunderstand that positionality statements are not supposed to suddenly make subjective things objective by adding the modifier of your personal experience. Um, yeah, but just uh, to so a quick interjection. Interjection. Let's give context to our readers who might not know what's going on. Um, uh, there's you a mean not published... everybody else sees my Twitter feed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go follow go follow Jan's Twitter feed for the hottest takes in open science. Um, so uh, this is a paper that was recently published. This is February um, in Perspectives on Psychological Science, uh, which I had thought was like a f- like not so had problems with the how the journal was operating. Um, wasn't it? It seemed weirdly prestigious for what it was. Maybe is what I'm think. What was my impression? Anyway, this pa- the paper that we're sort of that caused a lot of this controversy is um, titled "Positionality and Its Problems: Questioning the Value of Ref- Reflexivity Statements in Research." Oh. And of co- and essentially, their position is as Jan described um, that they're not without bias so therefore they're hard to uh determine as credible and therefore it uh undermines research and yeah like that's basically it's i'm reducing their paper significantly but yes that's essentially Mm -hmm. um that and i don't think the nuance they have saves it so I don't think reducing it is is um, taking much away in this case. Mm. Yeah, like I said uh, earlier, it's this argument of like don't bring ideology into science, and it's like yeah, but you can yeah. never be outside ideology. That's the whole that's whole point of how ideology works. You can it's always there. <laughs> yeah, and the idea like this this so outdated idea that you can have that you can present findings without context, right? Mm-hmm. That you can make ideology free science i th- i thought we were so far behind this like I, f- I i feel like this has been um this has been understood as n- impossible a long time ago but mm. maybe i was just sheltered by my own but body. i mean maybe the the pushback against this shows that we're not actually like we, we, we most of us understand this somehow it got through the few gatekeepers of the journal because there's only a couple of peer reviewers and there's the one editor so the gatekeeping is quite narrow and then an the editor who already like, oh, i mean an editor who already um had some weird ideas uh last december hmm. um or came under fire for it last december hmm. um, is this the same editor who like invited like nine of his friends as reviewers or something to like bash this paper okay right yeah i'm not mistaken okay, I read about yes. that yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, i was on um, holiday and i was like i feel like i need to get these engaged with this even on my holiday oh. and it's like i mean if you don't like it keep it to yourself like that's just your opinion man like <laughs> like i don't know like like <sighs> What frustrates me about this is like, okay, let's, I'm going to bring back my, my friend, Paul Firebend here. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's like, close and personal this, friend. yeah, yeah. Close, close friend. Uh, this, this like 
perspective that science needs to be this objective, rational, in like completely impartial, tr- like truth, universal truth seeking thing. Just a fantasy. Yeah, it's just it's it's so deluded. Like, like it's just a really out of touch, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, I think it's. It, yeah, it's like um, a lack of intellectual humility and a lack of openness um, is like sort of fueling a lot of these kind of positions. And it's sad. It's really sad to see, honestly. Like, mm. why not like take look look at these positioning statements and see what worth they bring rather than uh, what disruption that they're bringing to this idealized version of science that they hold like if they've put science on a pedestal, it's like, yeah. it's so, it's, it's unfortunate. And especially yeah. with positionality statements. Um, well, they might, maybe I haven't read enough of them, but I've never found them intrusive. They were never, you know, suddenly completely re- restructuring papers it was just you know a little paragraph usually in front of a qualitative analysis where people you know themselves actively interpret written text um or whatever it to me it just screams this suddenly some people had to be confronted with the idea that they might have personal biases because they are a certain way, <laughs> something, something they never had to think about before for some reason. Yeah, well, because their worldview matches the dominant world, right? Yeah. They've, it, they've never faced something that actually doesn't work for them. Yeah. I actually just read a really great positionality statement in a 2021 paper called Navigating Open Science as Early Career Feminist Researchers. Mm-hmm. And they Is have that, a that's really, Madeline really great... So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a really great positionality statement. And I've made Mad- sure of being like, this is a good example. Maddie Powell. Ma- I'm going to say Maddie because I follow her on Twitter and therefore she's like my close friend. Uh, like Paul. Yeah, like, like Paul, like Paul Fireman. Um, they're, yeah, sh- they're great. They're, they're, I highly recommend following them. Their work has been really formative for my thinking. Um, so highly encourage this and... Uh, I, I I can't remember this positionality statement that you're referencing now, but I'm sure like like that would be a great example to follow. Is mm-hmm. from what I've seen. There's a lot of overlap between the authors there and the Feminist Wonder Lab Collective, and we're working on a paper now on, on feminist science. That's, also, have yeah. a look at their new book. Yes. Link in the description. We have a long reading list this week to start off our. <laughs> yeah, season. get thinking. Start think. Yeah, get you know dive in i think uh like yeah one one easy take to have is like there's too much to be done but like i think this is world expanding honestly if you like follow these trails read these papers have a think about these things you're you're gonna expand your world um Mm -hmm. so that's my that's my rant actually think about do you feel satisfied a, a, a rent do we feel a lighter load it, it feels good to just complain about that yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah to yeah. get that off my chest <laughs> yeah if you want if if you the audience wants something uh you want to hear someone else complain about the same things you're complaining about or you want to hear other people um praise and cherish the same things you uh also praise and cherish let us know. Um, tell us tell us what you want us to to talk about uh, and rant about. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that takes us to our final segment. Uh, this is the least fun name so far. So very much open to feedback on this one. For <laughs> now, it's called delectable desserts. Um, it- the last course in afternoon tea. So in this segment, we'll share bits of knowledge that are often called tacit knowledge, the hidden curriculum. Things that you're expected to know, but aren't necessarily taught explicitly. And here again, so we invite you, members of the community, to share bits of tacit knowledge that you've picked up along the way and you think that everyone should know. 
So today we're going to start with open science itself as a hidden. Quickly, what is the like, what is the last thing you leave at like a high tea? Like, what is your dessert, like your idealized dessert thing? Like little little chocolates, little bites, the desserts. Because the way that I picture afternoon tea is like you have your pot of tea and you have your sandwiches and you have the sweets. Uh huh. And like yeah. little chocolates at the end. And so yeah, like what's your favorite? Yeah, what's your favorite? Is it is it that like that has little chocolates? Oh, I like dessert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I very much have a sweet tooth. I'm a chocolate I, I think what I think about when I think of a delectable high tea dessert, others like is like like a Portuguese tart, that little like egg. I don't know if this is common. <laughs> Actually, I don't think it's this is not high tea at all at all. It's just <laughs> this is just my favorite dessert. Like uh the those like egg tart things that are little like caramelized at the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what we're we're aiming for, this little little morsel of goodness. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and this yeah. is your suggestion. Wanna um yeah open science is a hidden curriculum item i this morning i talked to my supervisor um and we ended up on this question hey where did you hear about open science for the first time and when and Mm -hmm. for her it was the first time she was in her postdoc um that was around 2014 15 maybe not quite sure um, for me, the first time I heard about open science, I think it was when I, second years of my master's, I've became a research assistant and another research assistant came up to me. Hey, do you know about, do you listen to everything hurts? And I started listening to them. Mm, and great podcast. Yeah. Especially their PhD horror stories were kind of this eye opening thing for me. Oh, things are fucked. <laughs> I should start reading about this. Um, uh, and basically what I find shocking over and over again, open science isn't taught. The reproducibility crisis is maybe mentioned, but not taught. The fact that we are in the middle of massive upheaval could totally pass you by if the people who teach you might not be invested, right? Because it is not in any curriculum. We'll see. Um, but yeah, that's why I think open science is uh, actually a hidden curriculum item. Yeah. I mean, now that uh, you mention it, I first came across it when I started my postdoc. I think it was like randomly on Twitter. <laughs> like, why has no one talked to you about this before? So uh, I got into the sort of open science, science reform movement pretty early uh, because I was fortunate enough to have Alex Holcomb as my PhD supervisor. And Alex has been sort of at the forefront of you know, needing, bringing science reform, bring change to the movement. So I heard about that early, but I have had similar experiences where um, my colleagues, like other people in the PhD candidacy had never heard about it, had not heard about it, about the open science movement. Um, and like, so I would talk to them and ask them like, hey, like, what, what do you think about this thing? Or like, have you thought about peer review? I don't know, whatever. And I would get a blank expression in return because all they were focused on was their research and that's all they heard about from their supervisor like why would Mm -hmm. there was no space or no time dedicated to or no priority dedicated to um open science so yeah absolutely a hidden curriculum um and i think that's one of the best things about reproducibility like i started the reproducibility journal club at the university of chicago because i noticed there was an absence of this um, in my department. There was an absence of a course on it. There was an absence of discussions. Um, hmm. And I wanted to learn and develop uh, in this space with others. Like, I didn't want to just do this by myself. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to just do readings by myself. Um, mm-hmm. So the Reproducibility Journal Club was a really great way to get community and get things started and try to uh, reveal this hidden curriculum. Mm-hmm. So I guess the message is pass it on because presumably anyone who knows about our podcast knows about open science. I hope so. So you're already <laughs> in the know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so we encourage you to pass it on. Yes. Talk, talk to others. <laughs> um, and yeah, uh, I guess uh, this is a good place to wrap up. Uh, Sarah, do you want to uh, share where we can follow you, find you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Sarah underscore Sove and on TikTok under Madame M-A-D-O-M-Y-Y-T. And 
I'm William. Uh, you can also find me at Twitter on William, also Mastodon. Uh, and Ooh. yeah. Uh, and we unfortunately lost uh, Ian due to some technical issues, but thanks, Ian, for bringing up this suggestion of hidden curriculum. Jan can edit, uh, edit himself up. into the outro. Uh, yeah. So, and take it away, Jan. <laughs> yeah. Well, that comes that uh bleh, start over. That wraps up our first episode of the third season. We're very excited to be back. We're happy to have you back as an audience. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Let us know what you think about the segments. Let us know if you have any ideas for segment names. We like puns here at Producibility, so any puns you have to share are most welcome. So until next time, bye. Bye, everyone. You listen to Reproducibility Season 3, Episode 1, Reform vs. Revolution 2. Your hosts this episode were Sarah Sorway, William Niem, and Jan Vornhagen, who forgot to bring his charger into the recording studio. Good job! He can be found on Mastodon at vornhagenjb at hci.social. To send us your terrible puns or recommendations for the podcast, check the description below. And for more information, visit reproducibility.org. Thank you for listening.